Uh, today we're going to continue our uh, sermon series on the doctrines of our church. And this morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of Jesus. Uh, when thinking about the doctrine of Jesus, I think it's important for us, super important for us, to consider Jesus in three ways. To consider the divinity of Jesus, to consider the humanity of Jesus, and to consider the glory of Jesus. I hope that you'll hear those words a lot this morning. I hope you'll hear divinity and humanity and glory. I hope you'll hear them a lot. I want to start with a summation statement uh, that our elders put together. Uh, this might sound familiar to some of you as uh, much of this comes from the Apostles' Creed. It says this, we believe Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's a good portion of the Apostles' Creed. We recited it a couple of weeks ago. We sang the song that goes along with it. The Apostles' Creed goes all the way back to 3rd century, 4th century. I want to just make a quick observation. In this statement, we're, we're not going to consider atonement, although you cannot consider Jesus without atonement. That's, we have a statement on salvation, uh, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, and there we'll think through what the implications are of Jesus and atonement. But I want you to hear that statement as well, because it's super important. We believe Jesus Christ, by his suffering and death, made atonement for all humankind. And whoever will believe and receive him by grace through faith will be saved. So we'll come back to that statement in a couple of weeks. Uh, yet this teaching is ever present anytime we talk about Jesus. These 10 statements that we're making, they are interdependent. They do stand alone. Yet when we put these 10 statements together, they give us this beautiful picture of the essentials of the Christian faith. So I want us to dive in a little bit deeper than what our statement says. Not that it's not deep enough, but I want us to consider who Jesus is. I want us to consider what he's done. But this morning, I want us to consider Jesus's essence. I want us to consider his nature. Uh, we're going to tackle some deep theology here this morning. I, uh, uh, it, I, I, I have a master's degree in theological studies and a doctoral degree in practical theology, and I know this much. All that means is I've spent a whole lot of time in a classroom, and I still am not sure exactly what's going on. This morning, I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the doctrine of Jesus. Um, I got to tell you this, though. On my first day of class back in 1996 at Asbury Seminary, I learned probably the most profound theological lesson of my life. Our professor said this, it's one thing to know about Jesus. It's another thing to know Jesus. So my goal this morning is not to give you a bunch of knowledge and tell you all of these amazing things. My goal this morning is for all of us to know Jesus. I want us to know what Paul prays. I want us to know Jesus. Paul prays to know this love, to know this love of Jesus, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Uh, one of the primary goals of discipleship is to be conformed to the image and character of Christ, that we might become the manifest presence of Christ, the love of Christ, the aroma of Christ in this lost and dying world. On that first day of class, 
uh, back in 1996, Asbury, our teacher wrote this thing on the board. Back then, there was like chalkboards. I know that's not the case anymore, but way back then. And our teacher said, when it comes to theology, this is our starting point. So here we go. Love the person standing right in front of you, the Jesus of my understanding says, or forget the whole thing. Because if you cannot do that, then you're just going to continue making stuff up. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to meet the person that's sitting right in front of us or the person that's sitting right behind us. And then we're going to read this one more time. So just go ahead and get up and say hello to the person in front of you and say hello to the person behind you. Because if we can't love that person, we're just going to make stuff up. So go ahead, stand up, say hello to the person behind you. Say hello to the person in front of you. Go ahead, go for it. Yes. Is everybody doing it? David, I got you, brother. I got you, brother. Love you. All right, if you've met somebody, then you can sit down. Awesome. So, okay, so this is, so we're going to go back to it one more time. This is, here we go. So, Love the person sitting right in front of you. Love the person standing right behind you. The Jesus of my understanding says, or forget the whole thing. Because if you can't do that, then we're just gonna continue making stuff up. Loving the person right in front of you. That's where theology has agency. That's where theology lives and breathes. I want you to hold on to that. We're gonna come back to that. In a little bit, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2. These are going to be our primary passages this morning, Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. We're going to jump around a bit. Uh, We'll end up in Revelation at the end, but Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, really important passages for us this morning as we think about the nature of Jesus. Many New Testament scholars say that Paul wrote these letters to these little churches, these little house churches, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Galatians, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae. Many commentators say he wrote those letters to make sure that these little churches had a right view of Jesus. There was lots of stuff going on in these little churches. There were controversies. There were people coming from other faiths or other beliefs, and they were trying to infiltrate these little churches. And Paul is writing these letters to make sure that the church had a right view of Jesus. Think for just a moment at what could happen to a church if they have the wrong view of Jesus. Just think for a moment what could happen. What kind of damage could be done if a church had a false view of Jesus? So both here in Colossians, Colossae, and Philippians, Philippi, there's a lot of people who have some different views of Jesus that are causing a lot of damage and Paul's writing them to correct them. He's writing to them to ensure that they really know about who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. If you will, I think Paul wanted to make sure that they had a right understand, a right doctrine of Jesus. So I want us to start with uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. We've read this passage many times. It's the Christ hymn, if you will, of Colossians. It's a powerful statement about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
Christ's supremacy is seen at every turn in these few verses. The first portion of these few verses focus on his preeminent role in creation. The second is gonna emphasize Jesus's role as redeemer. So as we read through this, uh, you'll see some of this. I'm just gonna personalize it. I took out the pronouns and just put the name Jesus there. So it might read a little bit differently here than it does in your Bible. But this is what it says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything, Jesus might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. There's probably no list in all of scripture that's comparable, that has so many characteristics of Christ and his deity than this passage here. There's 13, I'm going to call them assertions about Christ. And I'm just going to run them by you one more time real fast. I want to make sure that you hear how powerful our Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Jesus is the originator of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the goal of creation. Jesus is the antecedent of creation. Jesus is the sustainer of creation. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the reconciler of all things to himself and Jesus is the maker of peace to any Christian in Colossae or Philippi or here or anywhere else that have been confused about Christ's role in the world. These six verses testify to Christ's absolute authority, which is not to be shared with anyone or anything else, any person or demon or angel, nothing. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews is going to start out his letter in a similar way that Paul starts out Colossians. Hebrews 1, chapter 1 through 3 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. And after Jesus provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In Colossians, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I love this. And here the writer says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. The word radiance just refers to what shines out from a source of light. 
Jesus is shining out the radiance. Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God. I want to make another really important theological distinction about Jesus. And this is going to get a little bit crazy, so stay with me. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. Jesus is fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was with God, the Father, and the Spirit before the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then Jesus enters into our world. We read this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus enters into our world. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, the theological word sometimes is used is called the incarnation, right? The incarnation. That's where we get our word carnivore or flesh. Jesus takes on flesh. God takes on flesh and blood. Jesus is God on the earth with human hands and human heart and a human laugh. Jesus is at once truly and properly God and truly and properly man. One person, two natures, Two passages of scripture, Titus, and then we'll get to Philippians chapter two. Really, really important, super important. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. If he had only been fully human, his death would do nothing to help us. Instead, the death of a fully human Jesus would just be forgotten and we would still need someone else to reconcile us to God. Had Jesus been entirely God, he could not have died for us because God cannot die. And the very fact that Jesus was fully human and fully God, that's what makes Jesus our Savior. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared to us that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that his, are his very own, eager to do what is good. If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Along with Colossians 1, the passage that we just read, uh, Philippians 2 is probably one of the most famous Christology passages in all of Scripture. It's concise and it's comprehensive and it's summary of the life of Christ, his divinity, his humanity, his glory. I gotta say this, it's elegant in the way that it's written. It's beautiful. It's comprehensive in its story and it's powerful in its descriptions of Christ. So verse 5, Philippians 2. Two, verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse six, who being in very nature God, remember we just said a second ago, uh, two natures, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses tell us the story of Jesus. Beginning with verse six, real quick, I've tried to highlight this a second ago. Jesus being in very nature God. Jesus being in very nature God. Some translations uh, use the phrase being in the form of God, but the original word, the Greek word here, is talking about his essence, his essence, his deepest meaning. The substance of Jesus is God himself. It is who he is. It is who he is. Jesus is the very nature of God. And the rest of the verse, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some other translations of this passage use this phrase, grasped, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held onto tightly or, uh, or greedily. Uh, picture this for just a second. Like there's these two guys running a race and they get to the end and they tie and they have to share a trophy and they hold up the trophy and they're holding it together and one's trying to pull this way and the other's like, no, this is mine. Even though we tied, I want to take this trophy. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not Jesus at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Although Jesus is in fact God, Jesus's nature was one of humility. He did not consider, he did not consider his own divinity something that he had to grasp. He did not consider his own divinity something that he had to hold on to to take advantage of. He was simply willing to let his divinity go. Verse 7 tells us, he made himself nothing. The Greek word here, it means to pour out Jesus, to pour out Jesus poured himself out of his divinity, like water being poured out of a bottle. And in place, that divine bottle, in place of that divine bottle, he took on a human body. Not just an outer shell, not just human clothes, uh, not just God dressing like me and you. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. I've heard about that happening around here a lot. People around here pouring themselves out, pouring themselves out for the sake of others. Jesus poured himself out into the world, emptied himself into the world. Can't help but what that might think. What might, I can't help but think what that might look like for you and me if we poured ourselves out for the person sitting in front of us or the person sitting behind us. What might that look like? If we poured, willingly poured ourselves out for one another. Jesus at once, truly and properly God and truly and properly man. Divine mystery, uh, super hard to wrap the mind, uh, the finite around the infinite. But what I want you to hear for just a moment, I want you to think about for just a moment is that Jesus is profoundly human. Jesus knows and understands every phase of human existence. 
Jesus even understands sin. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. But Jesus knows all about how the sinful acts of humans can have devastating effects on other humans and on our world. And ultimately, the sinful acts of this world crucified Jesus. My sinful acts and your sinful acts. I just want to say here for one more minute this idea of Jesus being profoundly human. Some of you might know that Jesus like ate and slept and wept. Jesus wept and laughed. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that there were times where Jesus was lonely and where Jesus was vulnerable. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have friends walk away from him. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood and accused. He said once, just before he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the crucifixion, he said, I am overwhelmed with sorrow. I am overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. I don't know what this is like for you, but as I grow older, I'm becoming much more aware of my humanness. And while I praise God, praise God, praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus, for overcoming the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, the sacrifice that saves me, I'm finding great comfort in these days of being reminded of his humanness. He understands. I can't get over this. I can't get over this. He made himself nothing. Only God can do that. He made himself nothing. He will, I can't get over this. He willingly poured himself out, including all, of all things, including his identity. He willingly gave up his divinity and took on the nature of a servant. Jesus willingly became profoundly human. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The most horrific execution man could ever devise, battered and bruised and beaten beyond recovery, the body simply gave in and Jesus died. It's super important to note that these natures present at the cross, again, if it was only one nature, the divine nature, then God would have died. And if it was only the human nature, then... Sin could not have been atoned for. Two passages, real quick, that I find representative of both Romans 5, 8 and John 15, 13. God demonstrating his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. And to lay, one's, lay down one's life for one's friends. Among other reasons, this is why I think Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Only this kind of sacrifice could fully pay the penalty for the sins of the world. Only this kind of sacrifice would be strong enough to redeem all of mankind. Only this kind of sacrifice could lead to resurrection. And the only one that could make that sacrifice is Jesus, fully God and fully man. Yet that's not the end of the story. 
the passage keeps going. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that, the name of, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul ends this passage the same way that he began this passage. He ends it in glory, highest place, name above every name, every knee will bow, Every tongue confess. We've come full circle in these couple of verses. Jesus starts in glory, and now he is in his rightful place, Jesus in all of his glory. This poem, majestic, and tells this beautiful story of Christ's divine nature, incarnation as a man, restoration, and reign in eternity. It's actually just a sermon illustration. You guys believe that? So crazy. It's actually, it's, in Philippians, he writes the letter. There's some stuff going on in the church. There's some stuff happening there. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and to be honest, they're not getting along. And so Paul wants to remind them of a right view of Jesus because a right view of Jesus will most likely change the way that we get along with others. There are people in that church gossiping and talking about each other behind their backs, and they're discontent, and they're not unified. And Paul's simply using the humility of Jesus as an example, as an illustration, your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. My attitude should be the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, practice the same humility, the same disregard for your own comfort that Jesus did. He, he gave up his own divinity so that others could live. And Paul's reminder, Paul's call is for you and me to do likewise. Paul writes to the church at Rome, these words, uh, excuse me, the church at Corinth, these words, this is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 through 6, for what I received, I pass on to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I love this. Paul's saying, hey, essentially, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe what I have to say, if you're not buying this, go talk to the people that have seen him after his resurrection. Go talk to these people who know Jesus. Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Jesus is not like one of those messiahs that came and went. Jesus is the only resurrected messiah. Jesus is far different than any other religious leader in history. Jesus was resurrected. These appearances during his resurrection happened over a period of 40 days. And Paul's saying, hey, some of those guys, one time he appears to over 500 people. Go talk to them. Go talk to them because they've seen him. They know him. In our day, people who don't believe they're encouraged to go talk to those Christians. Go talk to those Christians who don't just know about Jesus, those Christians who know Jesus. Go talk to those guys. Go talk to them. Well, after 40 days, um, this miraculous thing happens. Jesus, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after Jesus done talking with some people, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Make sure you get this. Jesus ascends to heaven in human form. 
the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. And then 10 days later, the Spirit of God falls on this little group of Jesus followers on what we call Pentecost, on the celebration of Pentecost. And then Paul writes to help the church at Rome understand later, to understand what happened. And he says this, he's talking to the church people, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. From heaven, Jesus sends the Spirit. The Spirit given by Jesus, now lives in you and lives in me. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus sends back to live in you, in me. Jesus is actively working within you through his spirit to shape your character and empower your obedience regardless of the circumstance. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says this, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You don't have to raise your hands on this question, but I wonder if there's some here who are ready to give up. Just done. Done with this whole Jesus thing. I'm just done. If that's you, I want to invite you to consider Jesus. To consider Jesus might be that things have been so hard because your world has been hurt by somebody or something. If that's you, I want to invite you to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus when you're ready to walk away. Consider Jesus when you're ready to throw your hands up. Consider Jesus when you don't think you can forgive. Consider Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I just got to say this real quick, because right now, Jesus is considering you. Jesus is thinking about you. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus knows what's going on in your world, in my world, and Jesus is standing before the Father, interceding on your behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It is so comforting to know that Jesus, who knows what it's like to be human, is now in heaven. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And right now, he lives to intercede for you and me. 
Jesus makes requests on your behalf, on my behalf. And he brings our prayers before the Father. Positioned between us and a holy God, Christ declares our righteous standing because of his sacrifice and our faith in him. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. One more passage, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If there ever were a time. In glory, Jesus is standing in God's presence on your behalf. In glory, Jesus is carrying out the Father's will. In glory, Jesus is orchestrating all things to work for your good and his glory. In glory, Jesus is preparing for his imminent return. This church exists that we might be transformed by the gospel to live in love like Jesus. Where does it start? Well, it starts with loving the person standing right in front of you. The Jesus of my understanding says, or forget the whole thing. Because if you can't do that, then you're just going to keep making stuff up. I'll close with one more passage of scripture. It's almost the last page of this great love story. Revelation 21, verses 23 through 26. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb its lamp and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. May it be so. In Jesus' name.